Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new Hi Jinx with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest is Clea Duval, and we are going to talk about her expansive career as an actor, her accomplishments as a writer and director, and the weight that she bears on her shoulders for being such a strong, badass queer icon. All today on Hi Jinx with me, Jinx Monsoon. So buckle your seatbelts and get ready for a bumpy ride. It's brand new. Hi Jinx. Forever. Dog. everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by actor, writer, producer, director, and everything else under the sun. Uh, also, technically, was my boss for one day. <laughs> it's Clea Duval. Hi, Clea. Hi, Jinx. Now, I realized how ridiculous this is going to be asking you at this point in our friendship, which is like um, three or four years old now. But is it Clea or Clea? Clea. It's oh, okay. God. Oh, there are people God. I've known for 20 years who still call me Clea, so it's totally fine. No, I'm just glad to finally have a definitive answer and now it's documented it's recorded so i can shame peaches christ for saying it wrong all this time yes <laughs> which you're gonna need that ammunition i always need ammunition with her she she keeps a catalog of every embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me and she just <laughs> you know brings it up at the most random moments um i don't know how to say this without Sounding like I um, stereotype lesbians, but I just knew you were going to have a hunter green, a uh, hunter green background today. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, you have to really keep. You have to play along with some of the stereotypes. So you don't want everybody who's stereotyping to look stupid. <laughs> I don't even know if Hunter Green is a, a lesbian stereotype, but it just, it, it, it seems so fitting. Clea. <laughs> you... <laughs> I don't know if it is either. I feel like it's more of that like older father figure that I'm trying to be for myself. You, by painting I mean, this room. A, you you a sophisticated do have the gravitas of, of an older father figure. <laughs> Um, for, for a, a young person, you, you have a lot of gravitas and I, I have to imagine it's because you've been in the biz for so long. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I don't really feel like I do, but I guess, yeah, I don't really feel like I do. Maybe it's a trick of the mind because, um, you are more reserved than most performers in the entertainment business. Yeah. And maybe that, um, maybe that withholding of affection just equates to <laughs> <laughs> gravitas. You have so many wonderful things for us um, to talk about, but I'm going to start um, where it began for me, 
which is with the film But I'm a Cheerleader, uh, uh, an iconic cult queer film that I know was formative in my life and many other people my age. Um, you've been a lesbian icon as long as I've known your name. <laughs> um, but you actually filmed But I'm a Cheerleader before you came out IRL mm-hmm. in real life. Um, <laughs> uh, what was that experience like? And do you think it um, played a part um, playing playing that iconic queer role? Do you think it played a part in your own coming out story? Um, uh, I have to imagine there was a lot of internal struggle playing such a um such a proudly fiercely queer character um before you yourself was out yeah I mean I the Jamie Babbitt who is a director of that movie had started talking to me about it before before the script was even done and I got and I was involved you know very early on and brought so much of myself to the part um and it's a, it's a weird thing that happens to me when I'm making something where it never occurs to me that anyone else is ever going to see it, no matter what it is. <laughs> like, like the after part is nothing I think about. Like I mm-hmm. have, it's like none of my business almost. So I, you know, so when I'm working on something, I'm so invested in that thing. And I'm so in the moment of that thing that it isn't until like moments before it's going to be released or moments before people are going to see it that I'm like, Oh shit, what is this? You know, (laughs) it, you know, what's going to happen now, you know? So, um, with, but I'm a cheerleader, you know, like I was out on set, I had a girlfriend at the time and she was with me, you know, she came to visit me on set a lot and, you know, everybody knew I was gay and, um, it wasn't until we started having to do press for the movie that I was like, Oh no, what? No, I'm not that. Like, I'm not that, you know, cause I was, you know, I had, I had had some movies come out already and mm-hmm. um, people were kind of like knowing who I was a little bit. So it, you know, it, there was an interest in knowing if I was gay or not. And it, cause it was also in a time, you know, it was the nineties or did it come out in the early two? We shot it in the nineties, but maybe it came out in the early two thousands, but like, that was a time where like outing actors was for some reason, something that people really wanted to do. Oh, I remember the arrow. Anytime someone came out, they were the cover of like us yeah. or people. And it just, it always had the same caption. Um, some variation of, yup, I'm gay. <laughs> no, but I mean, outing, outing people without them being oh, without, part of it. Without like, their, almost yeah, yeah. like, like trying to like, root them out like they're spies or something like that's really what it felt like um so it was you know it was weird and almost made me like there were there were a couple of people who were really like after me and trying to like you know trick me and like get like information of it it was the weirdest thing I was like I am a 20 year old girl like (laughs) leave me alone I'm not a Russian spy you know, I'm just like a gay person who doesn't not who's not ready to talk about it. And the more, you know, invasive people were and the more people treated me like I was keeping a secret, the more I felt like I had to keep it, you know, yeah. even though in my life, I, you know, every most for the most part, everybody knew. Um, 
but it wasn't, you know, I really think like the years and years after that of, you know, so many wonderful people approaching me and telling me what that movie meant to them and mm-hmm. um, seeing the strength that other people were able to get through watching the film, you know, was inspiring to me and definitely did have, you know, I wouldn't I, like, I'm not, I wouldn't say it was like the experience of making the movie, but it's the impact the movie had on people and then them sharing that with me that I found you know very inspiring on my journey to finally come out publicly yeah um Jesus Christ I mean yeah I mean I wasn't even thinking about forcibly outing actors at that time but that was definitely an aspect of of Hollywood at that time. And it was also at a time where it was a career ender or at the very mm-hmm. least a career changer for your for your sexuality to be disclosed if your sexuality was not heterosexual, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um I remember I don't know if this is all like old wives' tales or urban legends or something, but I remember hearing something that like there was a rumor that Jonathan Taylor Thomas was gay, which he isn't, but just the rumor and enough people believing it, like basically impacted his career irreparably. Oh, I've never heard that, but. <laughs> That's what I heard. But I think I recently read, because I wanted to know if that was actually true or not. I think I recently read that he just like retired from acting. So it might all just be, you know, like um, queer gossip, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But absolutely, I'm. Uh, but I'm a cheerleader. Had such a huge impact. Every, um, every lesbian I knew when I was a teenager had a crush on you. <laughs> sorry, sorry to Natasha Leone. There were a lot fewer people <laughs> into Natasha's character because everyone wanted to date the the, the bad girl at um, Constant Straighten Camp, and. <laughs> um, is that how you formed your friendship with Natasha Leone or had you known each other before then? We knew each other before, actually. We had met maybe we had met that year. Um, we had the same agent who always told us that we should be friends. Mm-hmm. And then one day I was in his office and she called and I, and he was like, oh, it's Natasha on the phone. And I was like, let me talk to her. And we ended up talking on the phone for like an hour or something. And she was in town um, doing auditions and stuff. And we both had the an audition for the same movie around the same time. And I remember like the very first time I saw Natasha, it was at Sony Studios. And I was like walking to my audition down this, like there's this street inside of the studio that's very long and I saw just like this little dot of a person (laughs) at the end of a street with all this hair wearing sunglasses and from so far away I was like that's Natasha I just knew that it was her and we like and she knew it was me and then we just like kind of kind of met in the middle and she was like so you want to you you want to get coffee or something after your audition and I was like (laughs) Yeah. She's like, okay, I'll meet you across the street. And then just like kept going as though we had like known each other for a thousand years and done it a hundred times. And then we were just like friends from that point on. And I went up to San Francisco to make a movie and she came up to visit me. And I had the script for But I'm a Cheerleader in my car. And Natasha picked it up 
And she was like, what's this? And I said, it's a movie that I'm doing later this year. And she said, oh, can I be in it? And I was like, I don't know. I'll find out. <laughs> so I called Jamie and I told her that Natasha wanted to do it. And Jamie was a big fan of Natasha. She had just, I mean, I think she had seen her in a couple of things, but, but um, Slums of Beverly Hills had just come out um, and she loved her and she cast her. And then, and then that was it. <laughs> and then the rest is her story. Yes. Um, it, I, I think I'll continue just believing in my mind um, that uh, your friendship started having to film your like undercover sex scenes that, <laughs> <laughs> in conversion therapy. Um, that f- well, that's where we also- fell in love. <laughs> that's where you fell in love. Flash forward to, um, I don't know, uh, how many years ago was it? Your wedding party. I talk about this wedding party. Um <laughs> I it's think it's so come fun. up at least twice in my in my podcast recordings, definitely with Mary Holland. Oh yeah. Um, Mary Holland is like... downstairs in my house right now. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it that was I mean, four years ago. Four uh, years no, ago. three years ago. It was three years ago because we got me and I got married four years ago. It'll be four years in November. We got married in 2017. And then we had the party one year later. Thank you. That's, I, I mean, like, I know it's such a tired joke, but, you know, like four years in drag queen years, that's like, <laughs> that's like half a century right there. Um, <laughs> that oh, night yeah. always um, stands out to me as like just one of the most surreal nights of my life. I mean, <laughs> I was, I was absolutely just so honored um, to be a performer at your wedding celebration and then trying my very best to keep it together and act cool and act like, oh, this is just so, so natural for me um, when like every other person in the room is an actor on a TV show. And it looked like your wedding party was like a reception after the the, the Emmys or something. <laughs> um, but the surreal the surrealness of it started with Natasha calling me to book me as the entertainment for your party. And with like barely a hello, she was like, Jinx, it's Natasha. Listen, I'm Clea's dad. And that was like how she started the conversation. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like Natasha. (laughs) Um, And then you and I actually met for the first time on season 11 of RuPaul's Drag Race when you and Tony Hale were guest judges and yes. also played the Snatch Game. Yes. And I was um, the Snatch Game coach, so I was there. And I just remember, I I mean, I, I left that day beaming because both you and Tony had been so kind and so friendly with me. But then I also, you know, Virgo that I am, OCD person that I am going over everything in my mind, like on the Uber ride to the airport afterward, like, oh my God, did I just seem like such a desperate, freaky fool? <laughs> no, we were the ones who were like, Jinx is here. Like, we were, that, we were so that excited behind the scenes. Blows yeah. my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tony, I remember. Tony being like a like a little kid that day, like a little oh, yeah. kid visiting mom at work or something. <laughs> we were so excited. It re- um, we really couldn't believe it that we got to like ju- be guest judges, but that we also got to be guest judge on a 
Snatch Game episode was oh yeah beyond the Snatch Game episode is all I mean it's it's the one thing you can count on death taxes and Snatch Game yeah um, <laughs> uh, you and Tony had mentioned to me that you watched. Uh, you had a drag race viewing party between the two of you. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that like a tradition that started um, while you guys were on Veep together? Yes. Yes. It had, he had been, I guess he had been watching it with some other friends. Um, Maybe a couple, it started before me, but I don't like to acknowledge that time. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, we started going and yeah, we, we, I feel like maybe we watched maybe like it's been going on for a while, maybe like nine, 10 and 11. We've watched together a while. A while. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'd like to get into Veep a little bit but first i have to bring up um i've i've i know i've talked to you about this before um i was obsessed with the show carnival oh yeah and you were one of um the principal characters on the show carnival which was set in the dust bowl um following the stories of a traveling carnival um, and then lots of supernatural and religiously inclined, um, spooky, uh, omen child stuff happens throughout the show. <laughs> and the show um, just ends. And uh, I think it was two seasons. Yeah. And then it just ends on a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest cliffhangers um, surrounding your character. Yeah. Um, For our listeners who have seen and who are as obsessed with that show as I am, what was that show like? Um, And how do you feel about the cliffhanger? (laughs) I mean, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I loved it so much. It was such a great group of people. We had so much fun. The sets were incredible. Every single person who worked on that show in every department was like top of their game. So so talented and it was so special and so weird. And I just, I loved it. I loved it so much. And when we got canceled, I was so upset. I'm still upset about it. If they (laughs) called tomorrow and were like, Hey, we're rebooting carnival. I was like, great, let's do it. Um, (laughs) It was just, it was so special and just, it just, and it was such a bummer that people were just not that into it when it was on, you know? It was about, yeah. and now I feel like it would do better. Oh, but it would definitely. I mean, people are obsessed time. with witches and and magic yeah. now. It feels like almost every other show has a has a magic element to it. Yeah, um, and what and my character was going to like shift into such a cool place in season three. So I was really bummed that I wasn't able yeah. to do that. 
I don't I don't want to give spoilers because I really want to encourage people to find it and and watch the two seasons that are there. But it's taking all my willpower not to talk about the very final scene with you. <laughs> I mean, I can I can try to find a creative way of saying it where it's not going <laughs> to ruin it for anybody who hasn't watched it. But it it is basically there. There's a character on that show that I was then going to like overtake and then basically become. Mm. <laughs> and it's the here I can show you because no one can see it, but it's the the person who I and then my yeah it's that person was then. <laughs> Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense to me. But it, it's that's great. No spoilers. <laughs> The person in question, um, the actor uh, whose name escapes me right now, was also in Pet Cemetery 2, which I just recently watched. So if if anyone wants to connect the dots, have you seen Pet was, Cemetery 2? I haven't. I haven't seen Pet Cemetery 1. Oh. Or 2. It's 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 pretty damn good. Um, they they did a reboot of Pet Cemetery and really um changed the ending. Well, changed a lot of it. But um, I I've been watching a lot of the like classic horror <laughs> films for mm-hmm. um October Ween, and um most of the sequels to classic horror films are everything you'd expect from a seat. I think actually classic horror film sequels are where we got the stereotype of sequels. (laughs) (laughs) Specifically horror films. Um, I just watched Nightmare on Elm Street the other day. I hadn't seen the original, yeah. It's not that scary. I remember being so scared of it and it is not that scary. Or I've just seen so many things since then that I'm desensitized to do it. Nightmare on on elm street is pretty kruger right yeah yeah i am i'm not as well versed in that one but lately i have been watching there's like 18 hellraiser movies and i think i've watched oh my god the first three they are really ridiculous and really campy (laughs) i've never seen a hellraiser movie what's that guy's deal He's a he's a demon who just, you know, does the typical demon thing. <laughs> just comes up and kills people? Yeah, well you have to open a little puzzle box and then oh, it okay. summons the demons. But Pinhead, the iconic um the iconic uh character from the Hellraiser series, uh, the guy with all the pins in his head, he wasn't even like the main demon in the first movie. He was just one of many demons. And then I think so many people mm-hmm. responded to him that they started to build the whole franchise around around that character. Um, <laughs> now we're yeah. officially off. Peach's pinhead costume uh, <laughs> or pin, pinhead uh, look is amazing. Yeah, that that to me is the perfect example of Peach's Christ is when she does a drag version of a cult horror icon and it's thanks to peaches christ that you and i are are now friends because i think our first time meeting was after drag becomes her with peaches christ and oh yeah oh yeah yeah oh my god that was so good do you think you you all will ever do that again oh yeah yeah actually it was um it was the show I was rehearsing when quarantine oh. began. We were going to do um, an encore performance of it in San Francisco. And 
we it was the day before rehearsals beginning and we were told we had to postpone rehearsals to see what the quarantine um deal was going to be and then by the end of that week you know everything was canceled and i remember being in san francisco in my hotel like just sitting there like what, so yeah. what do I do? So what do I do now? And there was this, you know, it was very quickly this like struggle between, oh my gosh, do I actually get a break? That's not <laughs> me having to like put my foot down and say I need a break. Um, because I never end up doing that. I always say this year I'm going to take a month off, and then I never do that. But um, uh, yeah, it was it was bewildering. But it is going to be, I think, the first show she does when she's able to get back to it. And I know it's um, going to happen in San Francisco and hopefully we make another trip Ugh. to LA. Cause... I would love to see it again. I was blown away. I'll play. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. From our um, cheesy dra drag parody of, um, to me, the most influential oh, it's drag. So of all time. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It becomes her. Um, let's talk a little bit about Veep, um, which is just, I mean, I had watched it all before we met and then recently rewatched it and I refrained from texting <laughs> you after every episode, but what a brilliantly written and brilliantly performed mm -hmm. show it's, and it's such an interesting time capsule of yeah. entertainment to to revisit yeah. today <laughs> yeah um what are some moments that stand out to you um, oh man i mean there are so many but it was such a wonderful experience everybody there is just the best it really is that you know it's cheesy but it was cheesy maybe to hear, but like we, it was really like a family where it was so supportive and everyone was just so kind and cared about the work so much. And there were no egos, there were no assholes. It was just really, it was so much fun to go to work every day. And, um, it was, it was my favorite show before I was cast on it. And my first day I was so nervous because I had also not, I hadn't done comedy in such a long time. I did comedy earlier in my career. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, people were like, oh no, she doesn't do comedy. She's a dramatic actress. So then I just never did comedy. So, you know, going into Veep, which I think is the best comedy or was the best comedy on TV and is still like one of the best comedies ever made. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, but, you know, I went in my first day and it was the scene where I'm meeting Celine, like where I'm meeting Julia for the first time and in the Oval Office and mm -hmm. it was Julia and Tony and I, they were so funny, but I couldn't laugh. Like I didn't want to be the person to break. I didn't want to fuck up the take. <laughs> and I was just like yeah. having, and also because my character was just like so stone-faced all the time, I couldn't, mm -hmm. I felt like, my face was just vibrating the whole time. And I just felt like everyone could tell that I was on the verge of breaking, but I never did, but they were so lovely. And it was, it was great. It was just the best. I miss it. I hope there's some sort of like reboot or something someday, because I would love to oh. work with all those people again. 
Let's just keep speaking <laughs> it into the universe. We did a couple of, ta- of like <laughs> virtual to... table reads over over quarantine, and it was so much fun to mm-hmm. be with everybody in that context again. Yeah, I I have to imagine so many of the characters are so angry <laughs> all the time, and I have to imagine for the actor, like getting yourself into that place of being angry and being combative. Maybe it's maybe maybe i'm off but um maybe playing angry is easier not to break whereas i feel like playing stoic which your character like you said is stone-faced and stoic almost the i i I don't remember a scene where your character wasn't in any kind of like (laughs) emotional (laughs) roller coaster even even when she was angry even when she was elated she was completely stoic and i have to imagine maintaining that through through takes would be more difficult than playing someone who's like a, an emotional yeah, fire it definitely <laughs> it was it was the hardest in scenes I had with Julia one-on-one I mm-hmm. could, it was that that's when it was really hard because she is just I mean she's <laughs> so brilliant and so funny and the dynamic between those characters was really funny to me. And like seeing the way she would react. It was a really yeah, interesting it dynamic. Just, yeah. It really made me laugh. So those scenes were harder. Those scenes were harder to get through. <laughs> those two characters had this really interesting respect for each other as mm-hmm. well as disdain mm-hmm. for each other. <laughs> it was, it was, oh gosh, it was interesting to watch it um leading up to the 2020 election um and definitely interesting to watch it again with like all the new stuff i know Mm -hmm. about politics and now that like you know everyone is like constantly posting and showing you and uncovering secrets and stuff and showing you how the political process actually works versus to how we were conditioned to believe it works and to be learning all of that in my own life and, and then watching Veep, which is this stylized, uh, (laughs) I mean, I have to imagine exaggerated version of real life, but maybe it's not exaggerated. Maybe that's just exactly how Washington works. I mean, I never had, I never, I never had this experience, but other actors on the show when, you know, like they would shoot in DC or even run into people on the street, anybody who works in DC would be like, that's exactly what it's like. It's so accurate, which is alarming. Oh my gosh. Um, and then yeah. especially in season seven, some of the storylines that then it felt like, it felt like the Trump administration was just like, watching Veeb and being like let's try that taking notes why don't we try that (laughs) it was just you know like the whole like the anti-vax storyline with Jonah like there were just I understand why it felt like the right time to end because politics really did become like crazier and sillier than anything the writers could think of yeah I think the most frightening thing about people in Washington saying that Veep is like how it really is. It's not really the language and the aggression and the combative nature of everyone. For me, the scariest thing is I think we learn in Veep that it no one actually believes mm-hmm. anything. Like the political party that they're affiliated with, 
is just like the luck of the draw they had and really everything they do and all the decisions they make are just about maintaining the power they have and not so much about any personal beliefs which is the scariest thing about it but also probably the best lesson to take from it yeah Well, you've had uh, an amazing career as an actor, um, but you also have, and quite recently, um, gotten a lot of praise for your writing and directing. And of course, I'm talking about Mm -hmm. Happiest Season, um, (laughs) which is, uh, I remember the first time we talked about it, um, we were having dinner in L.A., and and you mentioned that you were working on a film and you had a, a role in mind for me. And then I was, you know, doing my best not to, like, get my little <laughs> hopes up or anything. <laughs> because there's so many times in Hollywood where you're like, you have an audition that goes really well and they and they tell you, oh, you've got the role. We just have to make sure it's going to happen. You know? <laughs> um, but lo and behold... Um, a couple years later, we did indeed film Happiest Season, and it was the last thing I did before yeah. quarantine began. Yeah. <laughs> and you co-wrote mm-hmm. it with Mary Holland, who's in, mm-hmm. in your house right now. Um, and then this film was not just, you know, it was not just like a big deal in the queer community. It broke records on Hulu, attracting more new subscribers than any other film on the platform and for it to be a queer centered queer created um queer starring movie on a mainstream platform i think that's pretty huge potatoes how did that feel and uh, i hate that question how did that I mean, feel it, <laughs> but but give me your general thoughts well on it. you know i i it it made me feel really relieved you know because mm-hmm. it's that hasn't happened before, you know, like that, a, that a major studio backed, uh, you know, a, a holiday rom-com like that. And so, you know, and, and, you know, queer content in the mainstream that is, that can be like fun and funny and light is cause we, listen, we have a lot of our, um, what my friend calls like cold beach lesbian movies you know, where it's two <laughs> ladies coming together and they're not supposed to be together. And then they get to like be together for a couple months and then they have to leave and then they never see each other again. And like the most romantic thing is maybe they see each other across the room like 20 years later and you're like, hmm. <laughs> and listen, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is one of the most beautiful films ever made. I love it. I I, I wish I had the talent that that director had, um, has. But um, those sort of just like fun you know, you know, popcorn movies, we don't really get those. So, and I think we, yeah. you know, like queer story, like we should have queer stories um, in that format and why not? And why don't we? And so, and that, you know, luckily I found a partner in, in TriStar and they want, you know, kind of agreed with that and like, we're behind my vision and, you know, but there was the part of me that was like, oh, if this doesn't work, <laughs> then do we not get to have any more, you know, because like you get to have yeah. so many, you know, action movies, like disaster movies with whoever, 
And if it doesn't work, they're like, let's just try it again. You know, but when it comes to like, you know, underrepresented stories, you get kind of one chance. And if it doesn't work, then people get to look at it and be like, well, see, that's why we don't do them because they're not successful. You know, so I didn't want to be exhibit A for why studios don't want to make stories like that, you know, so or make movies like that. So when it came out and people responded to it and so many people were watching it and so many different kinds of people watching it that it really sort of like broke through in a mainstream way was like, I, I, it made me feel like we sort like we accomplished what we were trying to accomplish. Oh, absolutely. And then some, um, and it was actually, you know, um, when Dela and I were doing interviews uh talking about our experience being on set for that film um Dela had I thought the most astute note and I think you were um touching on that but uh there are there's so few queer films um that are not tinged with some element Mm -hmm. of tragedy or trauma um at least in the mainstream. I mean, I've seen a handful of queer indie comedies or queer indie, like um, weird character premises. But when it comes to mainstream queer representation, it's usually a coming out story that has some kind of tragic or um, traumatic element to it, or it's a story of HIV and AIDS. And I mean, those are all important Mm -hmm stories to tell but it does kind of give you the impression like oh queer people are there to like um to to share their trauma and share their heartbreak so that we can learn from their trauma or we can you know like broke back mountain <laughs> like, <laughs> ain't nothing fun and light about broke back mountain <laughs> um and then of course there's the whole um there's the whole aspect of most queer representation in mainstream media is by straight people written by straight people performed by straight people um or at least like delivered through a straight lens happiest season is the antithesis of all of that it um it just you know it was a it was a queer story um through a queer lens Four queer people and straight people were also in, invited to <laughs> enjoy it too. <laughs> I, at least that's how I describe it. But really, it's just a universal um, experience. And while it's a little, you know, it's is a bit of a coming out story. It's also just like a story about the the trials and tribulations of bringing your mm-hmm. partner home for the holidays, and um, for it to have just like a warm holiday rom com feeling with not this like overbearing sense of of dread and like everyone's yeah. dead by the end or at least <laughs> it just, was just nice to have a film like that <laughs> um this all makes me think about um a really amazing snl sketch um where it's called lesbian period oh drama. yeah <laughs> and... oh yeah i saw that that was really funny <laughs> I, I found it, for for my limited breadth of knowledge of lesbian period dramas, I found that sketch yes, very I accurate. thought it was very, very funny. <laughs> um, 
So absolutely, congratulations on the success of of Happiest Season. And I see in my notes from my producer that you and Mary Holland are working on a new yes. project together. Are you now the unstoppable writing duo? Are you going to just be collabing with well, Mary for everything? I'm, I'm <laughs> writing this for Mary to star in. Um, okay. She is just the funniest person. And uh, we had actually like started working on a different idea for her to star in. And it just like wasn't clicking for some reason. And then we, you know, Mary has so many stories from when she was like, you know, first moved to LA and was like starting out being an actor and all these crazy jobs she had. And I, and they were, it was my favorite thing to listen to was her talk about these, all these jobs. And I was like, this is what the show, this is what we should be writing is like a show Mm -hmm. about you doing all these different jobs. So we like, that was like a jumping off point and it's evolved quite a bit since then, but it's, but I think it's, um, I, I really hope we get to make it because um, I think she's so brilliant and such a wonderful person and um, I could just watch her in anything. Oh, absolutely. And I would, you typically use this time to gush a little bit about Mary, but um, she actually just recently did my podcast. Yeah. So she got her <laughs> gush time. Um, <laughs> plus, I really want to talk to you as as an adult child myself. <laughs> um uh basically the majority of things that i watch on tv are <laughs> animated and <laughs> um i i've learned that like um with with my anxiety and um my symptoms of ocd that i that's why i gravitate towards stuff that isn't going to make me yeah. potentially sad or potentially yeah. stressed out <laughs> Listen, I watched 20 seasons of Survivor during the pandemic, so I definitely understand what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, So adult animation is one of my favorite things. Um, And you have a new show. um, uh, You just uh, they just finished airing season one, um, Mm -hmm. Housebroken, which is an animated show about a therapy group for household pets and it is led by Lisa Kudrow, and that's amazing. <laughs> Lisa Kudrow is um, for for a. I, I mean, I don't assume Lisa Kudrow's sexuality, but for a a, a straight woman to be such a queer icon. I know. <laughs> I mean, she's up there now with Bette Midler and Cher, and then it's Lisa Kudrow on the straight female queer yeah. icon Mount Rushmore. Uh, <laughs> what's it like working with Lisa Kudrow and what's it like working on an animated I mean, series? I mean, working with Lisa is a dream. She is so cool. She's so funny. She's so smart. I just love her so much. And it really, it, it took me a little while to not feel nervous, you know, just because I admire her so mm-hmm. much. And to me, the comeback is like, one of the like top three greatest comedies ever like Valerie Cherish that character is just unreal um and all I you know like in the beginning all I wanted to do was just ask her questions about it and then and I haven't asked her all the questions I've asked her maybe I've really tried to play it like somewhat (laughs) cool um but Mm -hmm. I think at this stage I'm like now I feel like I can really let it go and just ask all the questions um 
is really, she's really wonderful and, you know, so game to try things and, um, it's just the best. And the show, I love it. I really, it's, I've never worked on in animation before. So there was a real learning curve, um, just in terms of how it all works, like just the, cause you know, live action Mm -hmm. makes sense to me. I've been doing that since I was a kid, but you know, animation, there are so many different steps and to understand, you know, what, you know, what they're each for and how to like do your best in each one and like to set you up for success in the next one. You know, that was all something that took a while to learn, but we had, have wonderful animation partners in Bento Box and, you know, the, the network is so supportive of us. And, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not the showrunner. The showrunners are, um, Gabby Allen and Jen Crittenden, and they're doing an incredible job. And there's, I actually know them from Beep, um, but it's really fun. You know, it's so cool to be able to write something and not have to worry about how much it's going to cost, you know, because no matter what you write, everything costs yeah. the same, you know, and you don't have to worry about the sun going yeah. down. You can write like a car chase or like a town exploding and it all costs the same as someone walking across the room. So it's really <laughs> it's really liberating creatively to be able to just like let your mind go and see what comes back. And this, the episodes we're working on already for season two are so great. And I'm really, really excited um, to, that we get to keep going. I'm, I, I really love the show because it really does. Um, it, it's so clever in the way that it mixes human problems Mm -hmm. and pet problems seamlessly where they're dealing with like human emotions that we all Mm -hmm. relate to but it's triggered by things like Mm -hmm. getting a new puppy or um you know uh being a Mm -hmm. stray cat you know (laughs) and just so much amazing um voice talent you have you have tony hale on there and lisa kudra of course yourself um you play a um an emotional Mm -hmm. companion dog Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then um oh my gosh why do i always oh i always i'm gonna look him up right now because i i you know what it is is that i'm always afraid that i'm going to um mispronounce his name so i have never committed his name correctly jason manzoukas jason i was like must be manzoukas yes (laughs) (laughs) he is such a you know what I'm going to hold there. I'm going to hold my thoughts on Jason Mansukas until later in the episode, because there's a perfect point okay. at which we can talk about him. Um, but I just want to congratulate you. you on Housebroken because it's it's just such a cool show and we need more adult animation. Always. There's never too much. <laughs> and um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for feeding my adult stoner child <laughs> habit of watching cartoons. So you have been with your mm-hmm. wife, Mia, mm-hmm. four years. Um, what's it like maintaining an adult relationship when you're one of the hardest working people in show well, business? Well, we've, we've been together <laughs> for almost nine years, but we've been married for four. Um, and we, you know, like, 
I think it's because the most important thing in my life has always been work and like being a creative person. And, Mm -hmm. um, that was always my priority and I could never imagine anyone being as important to me as that. And, but that is not a whole life, you know, you know, just working is not a whole life. And at a certain point I really realized over the, you know, through the course of this relationship, you know, she, we have really like worked together to learn how to communicate, how to support each other, how to listen to each other, you know, all those things that sound like homework that are really the building blocks to (laughs) having a successful relationship, you know, because we're not Mm -hmm. perfect people. We didn't come from perfect places. Like we all have our bullshit that we bring to the relationship. And it's like, you know, at a certain point, I feel like if you want to have a successful relationship, you need to, you know, if you find someone who you want to like unpack the suitcase with, with and go through it and, you know, get rid of the stuff that's not serving you anymore, then, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm saying that, like, I feel like I'm losing my train of thought, but it's basically just that, like, she was someone who I was finally, I felt like what we had was special enough and strong enough that it was worth doing the work that it takes to have a functioning relationship, you know, and we really, you know, we didn't ever look, we didn't have the illusion that you're supposed to you know, just like meet someone and fall in love and it's perfect forever. And you're never going to have any obstacles. Like that's just not realistic. And I think like letting go of that, the fantasy of like what a quote unquote perfect relationship is supposed to be really liberates you and allows you to, you know, see the relationship for what it is and see the other person for who they are and, and go from there. Because I just think when you're projecting things or, you know, getting lost in fantasies and frustrated that reality isn't lining up with your fantasy. Like you're never going to be satisfied. Um, yeah. So yeah, too long of an yeah, answer. I, think, I, I, no, no, it was a perfect answer because um, even when you thought you were losing your train of thought, I was right there with you because I think it's a, well, first of all, you know, so much of what we know or what we believe about relationships has been conditioned um, in us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so much of that is like through mainstream media and uh, the way relationships are depicted. And um, I know I definitely was under the impression that like your true love is the person who you meet and there's just never mm-hmm. any problems with. And um, being married myself now and being head over heels in love with my husband, um, I realized that it's like, oh, no, he's the person that I choose to yeah. do the hard work with. And he's the person that like the hard work feels worth it because I'd rather do I'd rather have any uncomfortable, terrible, like long, uh, annoying, tedious difficult conversation Mm -hmm. (laughs) with him than I would to, to lose him from my life. So, you know, it's a choice to put that work in and it's not like this, this like a Romeo and Juliet star crossed thing. It's, it's a lot like making a conscious choice, like, Oh, I love you enough that I'm going to do all the hard work. Well, it's Um, also, I think so many people, unfortunately, there's this idea of like, I mean, I've heard, I've heard, 
people say this, and I think it's another sort of like movie sentiment of like, well, what if there's something better out there? What if there's someone better out there idea? But it's like, that doesn't really exist. You know, like it's. Yeah. And then how do you ever yeah, know? Yeah. You're just going to have to go through <laughs> because... that same, you know, the same process with somebody else. It's all, you're going to have to, you have to learn the other person. And it's such a, you know, when you do, it's such a, such a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, now, I mean, of, of course, now my brain is worrying like, oh, when Michael hears this, is he going to hear the word tedious? No, and- but sometimes it is where you're just like, we well, have to like is. have that. Sa- you, sometimes you have to have the same conversation five times before you really hear the other person, you know? And then oh, the more absolutely. you get through those conversations, uh, the, the you know, maybe then it only takes maybe like one conversation to really hear them. You know, it's like. It's yeah. like going to the gym. The first time is so hard. And then the more you do it, the more you like get better at it and you get stronger and stronger. Totally. I know all about that. Um, <laughs> I'm someone who you have to trick me into working out. Um, <laughs> like when I was in dance classes, that was good exercise because it was like, oh, I have to go to rehearsal. I have to go to my dance classes because mm-hmm. I'm in this show. Um and so it was like it was a necessary evil but self-motivating myself to go to the gym is exactly what you described i still haven't gotten past (laughs) step one that like really hard step of going to the gym for the first i have to exercise it's so good for my Uh, brain if i don't exercise i just feel like mentally not that good even though sometimes i hate it and i wish i I could not do it (laughs) i'm sure that's exactly I'm sure that's true for me. I mean, I exercise by going on like three hour that's long great. walks around the city. That's exercise. Um, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't have time for a <laughs> three hour walk around Portland. But at least I live somewhere yeah. where that's possible. Um, <laughs> I just have one last um, one last kudos to give to you. One last bit of smoke <laughs> um, to blow up your ass um, before I get into my compulsory obligatory closeout questions and um that is that you received the hrc visibility Mm -hmm. award for being an advocate for the queer community in 2018 Mm -hmm. and i just wanted to take this moment to um first of all like reiterate that you are such an iconic person within the community you're an iconic person within the the human community at large but the work that you're doing just by being a talented actor being a talented writer director producer is you know doing the work of an advocate on top of whatever else you might do (laughs) i think um a visibility award you know i'm so glad Mm -hmm. they have those because sometimes just being visible and making yourself present and you know being candid about who you are so that other people can look at you and and just gain inspiration from it or see an example of of a queer person doing everything they set out to do in spite of the odds stacked against them and the industry they work in I think um that's brilliant thank you it was really it was really cool there especially since there was a time where I could never imagine being visible so it really felt like you know 
it was a moment that I really appreciated that I, that I, that I was in that position that I had made that choice. Cause I feel like once I came out, it really, I, my life got better, you know, publicly, you know, and I was able to fully, you know, be myself and express myself the way I wanted to and tell the stories I wanted to tell, you know, it was cool. As a queer icon yourself, I'd love to know who um, were some of your queer icons. And as we know, um, queer icons don't necessarily have to be <laughs> queer people. We we draw our strength and inspiration from all sorts of sources. So um, I'd love to hear about some of your early life icons that um, you drew strength and inspiration. I mean, from. my very the very first person who I feel like had an impact on me was Nancy McKeon in the facts of life, like that character that she played, which is probably everyone is too young to know who that is. But she was, you know, I was not your stereotypical little girl and being able to like see someone every week who was also, you know, kind of tough and kind of different, you know, but also had like a sensitivity and had like layers to them. Like it was really, um, it made me feel like, made me feel like less like something was wrong with me. Um, or like that I was getting it wrong. So that was really important. I felt that way the first time I saw Tilda oh, Swinton in anything. My God, <laughs> she's incredible. I I just in Tilda Swinton I saw everything mm-hmm. I wanted to be when I grew up in in yeah. one human being. Um, I don't even remember. I think the first, and it's so. <laughs> such a weird first role to see Tilda Swinton in but I think the first role I saw her in was um playing the role Gabriel in the movie Constantine oh. with Keanu Reeves which is like a I remember which is that like movie. a biblical action yeah. thriller I don't know if I ever saw that movie but now it kind of makes me want to watch it um Tilda plays a um an androgynous angel who uh, appears throughout the film. And I remember at a very young age, not knowing um, what this actor or character's sex was or was supposed to be. But all I knew is like, I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) other people out there exist who, who don't, who don't like just lean to one side or the other of the, of the gender binary. And I didn't even know any of those words yet. I didn't know the word gender binary or that phrase or term all i knew is until this wind and i saw something i wanted to grow up to be which is probably why i keep myself so pale (laughs) and redheaded um (laughs) it is time for my close out compulsory obligatory questions um question Mm -hmm. one is who is your celebrity crush today oh um Damn it. Who is it? I mean, it's hard to really pick. I'm going to go. I mean, Rachel Weiss is always is always right up there but I feel like there's like a someone else who I've recently seen in something where I was like I love that person but then weirdly the person who I always have a crush on is Channing Tatum I love him so much (laughs) I love him so much I just think he's adorable (laughs) 
Um, Dale and I were writing something uh, recently where we had to come up with a like a pun name for some for a man made out of old <laughs> coffee cans, and um, I came up with James uh-huh. Vanderbeek. And and I think in the end we were like, okay, it's got to yeah, be Canning Tatum, um, and then we cut that part oh. from oh, wow. entirely. So <laughs> it just exists in notes somewhere now. Canning Tatum. Um, here's where I will circle back to okay. Jason Mansukas. Um, he is definitely my celebrity oh. crush for the day. I find I find his erratic, um, chaotic energy that he brings to basically every character that he plays strangely yeah. intoxicated. Jason is very <laughs> handsome. He's very funny. He's very charming. He's very talented. There's a lot to have a crush on there. I totally understand. Yeah. And um, gosh, the voice alone. I mean, what a great person to oh, yeah. be a voice actor. Because I feel like he he fits the roles that he plays, but also it's like the second you hear that voice, you're like, yeah. oh, I know who this character is. That's like, you know who the actor is voicing the character, but like just hearing his voice, you're like, oh, I've got a really great totally. sense of who this character is totally. immediately. Um, <laughs> your next question is, are you spiritual? Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not not in the sense that like, Listen, I don't have any kind of spiritual practice, if that's the question, but I believe in like, I believe there is something like greater than all of us. What is it? No clue, but it just feels like there's something else going on around here that is, that connects us. Yeah. I think I remember, I can't remember the term for it. Um, in philosophy class, um, when we were studying theology, there's like a term for, I, I, I don't know, essentially it boils down to what's your yeah. best bet. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you could be an atheist and say that nothing exists, or you could be open to the possibility that there is something larger and then maybe have a better chance uh, at whatever afterlife might happen <laughs> than like an yeah. outright atheist. Well, <laughs> I mean, just from a scientific perspective, like, <laughs> like we are energy, there's energy inside our brains and that like makes us who we are. Right. Basically. I'm not a scientist mm-hmm. Yeah, and energy can't be created or so it destroyed. So when we die, like it, but it, tra- it has to transfer because it can't just disappear. Clea, you are literally saying verbatim like the point I make (laughs) all the time to my very like science driven friends who are like nope there's nothing afterwards you die and it's like you're out like a light and I'm like where would I mean because the brain can die but the mind is separate from the brain and consciousness is completely on a different level than like what we can well try that try this so I I mean like I just thought of this okay so like (laughs) They're saying it goes out like a light, but we are not the light. We are the light bulb. Light bulbs burn out, but the electricity that powers the light bulb doesn't go away. It just, it goes, yeah, it gets it redirected. Gets redirected. This is, I mean, do the I light bulb thing. I don't know. If you come up with like a, a good <laughs> I'll, enough I'll analogy, I feel thing. like you can convince anybody of anything. 
But I think it's fair um, to also point out that usually this is also how I justify my belief. Oh, I believe in ghosts 100%. A lot of people. (laughs) But I've had so many experiences that I'm like, there's no, there's no explanation for the thing that I'm telling you right now. And if you don't believe it, that's your problem. But I did listen. And I will say that 70% of the time someone's telling me a ghost story, I'm like, that's not true. And that's because I'm a skeptic, but also I'm a skeptic and a believer. And also just logical that I, like, where does that energy go? Disappears impossible. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just so glad to hear, like, we haven't <laughs> had this conversation before. So these are your own thoughts that just happen to be the exact same thoughts I have. And I suddenly feel so much <laughs> less crazy and so much more validated. And like, I'm ready to go back to those friends and yeah. pick up the conversation and get into a fight about it all over again and be like, well, you know what? <laughs> Clea Duval, and they'll be like, "No, I haven't." Well, she thinks, <laughs> "No, I haven't." No, Google image search her. No, I'm no, not my sure. Friends. I'm still not sure. <laughs> no, my friends. <laughs> um, my friends. Anyone who knows me knows you because pretty much don't <laughs> shut up about you. Um, here's your, here's your final question for the day. What is your go-to karaoke song? Here's the thing. I hate karaoke. But what I can tell you, and I won't do it, um, but what I can tell you is the best experience I ever had singing karaoke. And mm-hmm. it was when I was still drinking. I don't drink. I'm nine years sober. Um, but I was I did. I was working on something and we all went to do karaoke and we all got very, very drunk. And then as a group sang like a prayer. And it was so fun. <laughs> so I, that if I um, was the kind of person who did karaoke, I would do that song, but I'll never do that again. Uh, I just want to know who's. It wasn't about, it was working. We, it was like a bunch of, we were, I was working on a, on a pilot that never got of a show that didn't go. We were all in Vancouver and went out for this night and everybody got drunk and sang that song. <laughs> Well, when I hear drunk people singing like a prayer, I just assume it's a bachelorette. <laughs> um, I, I'll tell you, I don't usually share my favorite karaoke stories, but I don't know if you've ever even met my best friend, Kenny, who um, uh, works as my tour manager and business partner. But I, I have to make you two meet sometime because I think you'd hit it off amazingly. But um, they will not sing karaoke. But one time they got really drunk and ripped the mic out of my hand to steal the song maybe this time from Cabaret from me. And like when I mean, they know this about themselves, but they are hands down the most tone deaf person I have ever known in my life. And to see your like drunk, stoic, tone deaf best friend um, kind of vindictively singing the song maybe this time. That that for me is like we can never do away with karaoke because moments that's like really that fun. <laughs> I want to thank you so much, not just for um the podcast today, but for your friendship and for your um I don't I don't want to like say this in a weird way, but your support of me as oh my an God. artist throughout the years that I've known you. Um, you've always been uh you're you're a drag super fan, but you've always been so generous to me and Peaches and Dela and uh, other 
drag queens in my life. You've been generous with your your time, your attention, your support, and you even wrote a role for me and Dela to play in your groundbreaking holiday. I was so honored that you both season. wanted to do it. It was so it was so much fun, and you were so wonderful, both of you. And um, thank you. I mean, you're incredible. What's not to <laughs> What's not to want to support? <laughs> thank you thank so you. much, Clea. And. And I want to thank all of you so much for listening to Hi Jinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday, so make sure to search for Hi Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. Where can they follow you, Clea Duvall? Um, I think I'm at Clea Duvall on Twitter and then at official clea d on instagram i have been off social media and i think that maybe permanent i've been thinking about being permanently off of it because i'm so much happier when i'm not on yeah <laughs> it is definitely an uh yeah <laughs> I'm like, how do I spout off spout off on my feelings about social media, knowing full full well that it's how I connect with ninety percent. I know audience. that's the thing. But I think I think most of my listeners can pretty much pick up on just from the 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 things I talk about in life. I'm sure everyone knows how I feel uh, about the necessary evil that is social yeah. media in my life. Yeah. <laughs> um. Clea, thank, thank you so much. I know I've said that like eight times. Oh God, I had the perfect thing to go out on for this episode and I lost it. So, <laughs> so there it goes. <laughs> I always do. I always get so, um, I always get so funny when I'm talking to you because I'm always like, okay, this is someone I've known long enough where I'm like, you can consider Clea yeah. Duvall a friend. Oh, now I remember. <laughs> But I do always like then later analyze my conversations with you. And it's because of the immense respect I have for you, but also just um, my growing anxiety. <laughs> but I was going to close out. Um, I was going to close out reminding you that should you ever have the time, <laughs> should you ever have the time or the ability um, to film a video of you spoofing um, Shelly oh, Duvall's right. uh, supercut right. of Hello, I'm Shelly Duvall. <laughs> That's right. Um, if you haven't YouTubed that yet, okay. please do that okay. right after I this will. conversation. And say I hi will. to Mary for me. <laughs> Jinx ad free and one day early. Sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social and rate and review Hi Jinx five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi Jinx is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, produced by Big Dipper, editing and sound design by Will Pitts. 
Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.